Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Hey, Keith. What do you think most people think of when they hear NFT? Well, I was telling people the other day that you probably missed the football games on Sunday <laughs> because you thought the NFL was really NFTs. You thought, oh, I already know all about that. And so you just <laughs> read a book or something like that, refreshed your Latin. Uh, but I don't know. NFL and NFT, those are different things. You know that, right? Yeah, I think you know that too. <laughs> yeah, I do, but barely. I mean, it's shocking how little I understand about NFTs. I was with some guys this morning, and they didn't know what it stood for. So I got that on them. You're a step ahead. What I, does it stand for? Non-fungible token. And I think I can even tell you what fungible is. I Go. Think. I'm excited for this. Are what you ready? Well, okay. So I can give an example. A dollar bill is fungible because you can have another dollar bill that has the same value. In fact, there are millions or billions of dollar bills. So they're interchangeable. And a non-fungible token is something that is discrete or unique. There's only one of them. You can't have another one. Yeah. So like a piece of art is non-fungible. There's only one piece of that piece of art out there. Correct. So that's kind of what I know. <laughs> it didn't take long. Okay. So I think what most people hear about NFTs, I think one thing that pops up is like, oh, this is some bizarro scam, right? Because for some reason you're telling me that I could pay money for this JPEG that I could copy and paste for free. So why in the world would I pay money for something that I can have for free? And when you say JPEG, yes. you mean a digital image. Are we, are we that? Like, I, I people think we don't are. know what JPEGs are? Based on the conversations that I've had recently trying to talk about this, I, I'm not sure that most people know what a JPEG okay, is. Okay, so JPEG is the file extension on a photo. So, like, let's say I had a photo of Keith. It could be Keith.jpg. Or if you're familiar with Word, you've got, you know, if you wrote a book called Keith, it'd be Keith.docx. I can't wait to read that <laughs> book. I mean, it's so interesting. Right? So, JPEG is just a file extension. It's a type of file. It's a photo, okay? But that's what I think people think of is, hey, why would I buy a photo? That I could just copy and paste. Or it feels like this weird collector item thing. Like you've probably heard about the NBA NFTs where you can buy a clip from a game. And now that clip, which by the way, you could find on YouTube and watch for free. But you own that clip. That is now your clip of whoever, you know, you like watching. I don't watch the NBA, so I'm not going to try to play it. And what would you do with it? So again, like what's the value of this, right? Right. I yeah. <laughs> so you're going to tell us? Well, we'll talk to him about it. You know, I think people also think of, there's this phrase out there called crypto degens. And actually, this is really funny. So maybe people have noticed this on Twitter. Um, normally, your Twitter profile picture is a circle. But have you noticed people with hexagons? I have. Or maybe they're octagons, actually, now that I think about I it. I don't know. I think they're octagons. Okay, yeah. so what's the point? If you see someone with an octagon profile picture, that is an NFT. Have you made yours an octagon? 
I do own two NFTs. I'm not a big NFT investor, but neither of them are images that I would like to use as my profile picture. I want me to be my profile picture. What are your NFTs? So this is interesting. So there are Christians who are in this space, and I'll talk more about this later, but one was actually a gift from an NFT artist named Patrick Bezalel, who lives in uh, Singapore and does resin artwork, but has really gotten into NFTs. And he's built a really cool Christian community around his NFT art. It's called Metaverse. Now he spells it differently than that. And all of them are these kind of little sheep, and it's based on Isaiah 53. It's like all these little sheep that are all living inside the metaverse. But there's a cool little community that's built around it on Discord where people are going in and there's prayer requests. They're talking about their lives together. So that's one that I have. I've got another one that's actually based around my name. I own patrickmiller.eth. Wow. Okay, so my guess is we're already losing people yeah, because yeah, we're already we're diving into in. the deep end. There's so much you're saying that I don't understand, like yeah, DGENs. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. And ETH, I don't know what that is. And so we're going to have to go back to the yes. beginning and start through this. But maybe to set that up, when I have been talking to guys trying to figure out what they know about NFTs, what I get is this look that says, why does this matter? Who cares? This is dumb. This is something that a few weirdos are making a big deal out of, and probably they have some ulterior motive, but this doesn't apply to the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, I think people, well, they might not know the number. They realize, you know, this is a $7 billion market right now in NFTs. So it's not a giant market, but it's not a small market either. And I think a lot of people, this, look, this is fueled by speculation. It's destined for collapse, like the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. You know, so this is all just silliness. And I think that's people's response to most new technologies is to kind of laugh at it. Like, oh, really, this is going to change the world. This is going to, sure, buddy, you know what you're talking about. You're not insane. Yeah, we have to be careful because when people talk about new ideas, the tendency is to scoff at them. And we can go back and not so distant history and find people at scoffing at things that we take for granted today, things like the internet or email. And we don't want to be the person who is scoffing at what is in a few years or uh, maybe a decade going to be a normal part of life. We're going to miss out if we are so cynical and so skeptical that we won't open our eyes to maybe something new. Yeah. And let me just say this. If you think this is an episode that's telling you to go invest in NFTs, one, if you're taking your investment advice from a pastor, (laughs) I mean, God bless you. (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) That's not what this is about. I do not recommend that anybody listening to this goes out and buys an NFT after listening to this. That's not the point of this. We want to think Christianly about this new and developing technology. And we want to do that because failure to do that in the past has had a lot of costs. And we'll circle back to that in a second. But I want to start with a little bit of fun this morning. Here's what I want to do. I want to go back and find some clips and some news articles that came out in the mid-90s when the internet was first becoming a thing. So we're talking 1995, 1994. I want people to see how people reacted to the internet back then. Yeah, so the first one is Bill Gates on The Late Show with David Letterman. But, but you know, I think about this, and what about this internet thing? Do you, do you know anything about that? Sure. What, what the hell is that exactly? Well, it's, it's become a place where people are publishing information. Right. So you, everybody can have their own homepage. Companies are there, the latest information. It's wild what's going on. You can send electronic mail to people. Uh, it is the big new thing. Yeah, but, you know, uh, it's easy to criticize something you don't fully understand, which is my position here. Go ahead. But I, I can remember... A couple of months ago, there was like a big breakthrough announcement that on the internet or on some computer deal, they were going to broadcast a a baseball game. You could listen to a baseball game on your computer. 
And I just thought to myself, does radio ring a bell? <laughs> you know what I mean? I just... there's, there's a difference. There is a difference. It's not a huge difference. What is the um, difference? But you can you can listen to the baseball game whenever you want. All right. Too. Oh, I see. So it's stored in one of your memory deals. Exactly. And then you can That's come back the RAM a year thing later. you talked yeah, about earlier. Yeah, yeah. Do tape recorders ring a bell? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I just I just don't know. What what can you just knowing me the little you know me now? What how what am I missing here? What do I need? Well, if you want to learn about the latest cigars or uh, auto racing right. uh, statistics. Well, you know, or, I, uh, I've got that covered. I, I subscribe to two British magazines devoted entirely to motorsports, and I call the Quaker State Speed Line about two times a half hour. <laughs> so now, now, would the computer give me more than I'm getting that way? Oh, you can find other people who have the same unusual interests you do. Uh, and... <laughs> You mean, you mean the troubled loner chat room on the internet? Absolutely. What I love about that is that Bill Gates can't even quite describe the internet, right? No. Because there was more things he could have said about listening to that baseball game even back in 94, 95 when that is yeah, recorded. Said, hey, what if you're not within radio reception of that game? You're a New York Yankees fan. You want to listen to the Yankees game, but you live in California. What do you do? But he can't even quite explain it because it's all so new and people are trying to get their head around it. And so do you want to be that person? Do you want to be the David Letterman mocking NFTs when they become the future. Okay, I want to do another clip that I really like. So this is the Today Show crew, Katie Couric. Bryant Gumbel. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're about to begin a segment on the internet. Might what have year been, is this? It's 1994. So I think this is maybe the first segment that was ever done on the Today Show <laughs> about the internet. And so it's beforehand. And these anchors are trying to figure out what the heck they're about to talk about. When you listen to it, you have to imagine the dumbfounded look on their faces as they have this conversation. I mean, they are completely confused. So Keith and I are going to refrain from laughing over the, <laughs> the top of this, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Pass. I wasn't prepared to translate that as I was doing that little tease. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At? See, that's what I said. Mm -hmm. um, Katie said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard or it. Around I'd never heard it said. I'd always seen around. the mark, but never yeah. heard it said. And then yeah. it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. <laughs> yeah, I heard around big or about. in the lunchroom the See, week. <laughs> there it is. Violence at NBC, GE, com. I mean. Well, what well, Allison should know. What, what do you is say internet about anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network, mm -hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. What it's, do you mean? That's big? How does one, what do you write to it, like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. It, I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what Internet is? No, she can't say anything in 10 seconds or less. Oh. <laughs> oh, Allison will be in the studio shortly. What, is, what does it mean? It's a, it's a giant computer network made up, made up of, uh, started from... Oh, I thought you were going to tell us what this was. It's like a, look a in the computer dictionary. billboard. It's, it's not in it. It's, it. it's it's a computer billboard, but it's nationwide, right. and it's, it's several uh, universities and everything all joined together. And right. And others can access it. And, right. And it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. It just came great. in really handy during the quake. A lot of people, that's how they were communicating out to tell family and loved ones they were okay because all the phone lines were down. I was telling Katie and I was talking. But you don't, need, you, don't need that, you don't need a phone line to operate internet? No, no. 
<laughs> okay, so <laughs> that's a great clip. And it's worth going to watch because they're all trying to draw the at sign with their hands as they're talking about it. And they don't call it the internet. They're all like, what's internet? It's well, and they don't know the at versus about. They don't know what it is. They don't know what it might be used for. <laughs> Do you have to have the phone lines to make it work? It's pretty funny. Now, again, in retrospect, it's easy to look back on that and laugh. But I think it was representative of where most people were in 1994. No one quite understood what the internet was unless they were an early tech adopter. I mean, we're talking just that's 25, less than 30 years ago that people had no idea what this was. And yet today we can't imagine living without it. Everybody knows what it is. To not know what it is, is to be completely out of the loop and can't function in today's society. So life changes quickly, especially in the area of technology. And what seems silly one day becomes very normal the next. Okay, Keith, let's do one more. So there was a Newsweek editorial in 1995. (laughs) The headline was, The Internet? Bah! Okay, and the article is hilarious to read because it's making fun of the future predictions of the internet and almost everything he makes fun of, we will recognize as a regular part of our reality. So, uh, Keith, you want to give this a read? After two decades online, I'm perplexed. It's not that I haven't had a gas of a good time on the internet. I've met great people and even caught a hacker or two. But today, I'm uneasy about the most trendy and oversold community. Visionaries see a future of telecommuting workers, interactive libraries, and multimedia classrooms. They speak of electronic town meetings and virtual communities. Commerce and business will shift from offices and malls to networks and modems. And the freedom of digital networks will make government more democratic. Baloney. (laughs) Baloney. Do our computer pundits lack all common sense? The truth is no online database will replace your daily newspaper. No CD-ROM can take the place of a competent teacher. And no computer network will change the way government works. Consider today's online world, the Usenet. A worldwide bulletin board allows anyone to post messages across the nation. Your word gets out, leapfrogging editors and publishers. Every voice can be heard cheaply and instantly. The result? Every voice is heard. The cacophony more closely resembles citizens' band radio, complete with handles, harassment, and anonymous threats. When most everyone shouts, few listen. How about electronic publishing? Try reading a book on a disc. At best, it's an unpleasant chore. The myopic glow of a clunky computer replaces the friendly pages of a book. And you can't tote that laptop to the beach. Yet Nicholas Negroponte, director of MIT Media Lab, predicts that we'll soon buy books and newspapers straight over the internet. Uh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty remarkable. Who wrote this? (laughs) I... Maybe we shouldn't say his name. Yeah, I'm not going to say the poor guy's name. <laughs> because I'm sure he's embarrassed eat. by now. Yeah. But people would do this today, right? Yes, about <laughs> NFTs, about a lot of things, right? And Absolutely. we, of course, don't know if NFTs are going to play out like the internet and email and digital books and all this multimedia classrooms. So there are things that come along that pan out and things that don't pan out. And you don't know it ahead of time. But what you have to do is think everything through, try to understand it, and best you can see where it's going. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't prove that a new technology is going to work simply by pointing to the fact that people got old technologies wrong. We don't know what's going to work in the future. What I can say is this. If you have your pulse and the leading thinkers in technology and the internet, this is what they're talking about. This is not some side project that a few you know weirdos are buying into. This is, it seems to be the future. And so, again, it's really easy to be like this guy kind of laughing it off, shrugging it off. I don't know if that's the right response. 
And frankly, Christians sometimes are the people who are the most skeptical of things like this. I think maybe that's because there's a sort of separatism that exists within Christianity. There's a kind of a natural cynicism that we have toward the world. And when Christians get cynical about technological advancements, we tend to put ourselves in a position that is behind the rest of culture. We tend to be followers instead of leaders. We tend to be reacting instead of being proactive. And that has done a lot of damage to the faith. No, I think that's exactly right. If you roll back the timeline to the mid-2000s, when social media is first beginning to develop, so, you know, Facebook starts around 2005, 2006, and obviously we can name all the other things that have started since then, Twitter and Instagram. I mean, this is really not that long ago. And Christians, again, they had this exact same response. Oh, sure, people are going to share their lives online. Oh, oh, sure, people are going to write about what's happening in their lives. They're going to share, oh, yeah, whatever. That's not going to happen. And because of this separatism, Christians really disengage with social media. And meanwhile, social media is blowing up. You don't have Christians in the room where it happens. So they're not many working at Facebook or Amazon or these other places that are developing these things. So they're not shaping the ethics and the way that those companies are thinking about what they're doing. And beyond that, Christians aren't being cognizant of how they're using these platforms and how these platforms are changing them. I mean, this really shocked me. There was an MIT report that came out and it showed that 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages in the US, and by the way, these are by by and large, larger than every other Facebook page that comes off of that top 20 list. I mean, these are pages that you might be on. These are pages that your friends are almost most definitely on. 19 out of the top 20 are run by foreign troll farms. So these are Facebook pages that Christians are following in droves, listening to, influencing them. There's nothing really Christian about them. They are just troll farms using a facade, a Christian front, to influence and manipulate Christians. Christians are going for it. They're buying it. Yeah, let me kind of explain what's happening on these troll farms. 95% of the things they post are kind of bland, Christianese sounding things. And what they're actually often doing is they're finding the most popular Christian post out in the Facebook world, and they're copy and pasting them onto their own page because they say, hey, if it worked there, it's going to work here. But there's a very nefarious 5%. They're drawing people into conspiracy theories. They're trying to shape people's political aspirations and interests. And so you're on a page and it's all this wonderful stuff about praying for people and Jesus is Lord and Bible verse images. And wow. And then all of a sudden it goes queuing on on you. But because you've already trusted this page and you've seen so many good things, you think, well, gosh, I mean, if this page is saying this, then maybe there's some real merit to this idea that people are sex trafficking children under Central Park. So it makes sense that they build trust with you through putting that what you said is bland or just good, solid content out there, but then use that trust against you to manipulate you. Yeah, but, to destabilize you. But I want to go back, if it's okay with you, to something you said just a minute or two ago, and that is that Christians were not involved in thinking these issues through. They weren't working on Amazon or Google or Facebook. They weren't thinking through how should Christians ethically use these tools. And I think that goes back to the sacred-secular split that we have in our faith, that a lot of people think in terms of their faith only of Bible reading, church attendance, maybe talking to somebody about Jesus, but they're not thinking about their education. They're not thinking about culture, business, the world, technology from a Christian perspective. And so when Amazon or Google or whoever these companies are, when they go hire those people, they're not hiring people who are also committed, devoted, wise, sincere, Jesus-loving Christians because those people have written off their education, have written off technology and business as, as something less important, something that's not in the kingdom of God, something that God doesn't care about. 
So the church's sacred-secular split problem comes back to haunt us at moments like this. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Facebook leaks that are showing that Facebook is, you know, essentially causing massive levels of depression, anxiety, and even suicidal ideation among teenage girls, and they knew that they were doing it, and they knew that their product was the thing that was causing this. What if a Christian had been in that room that had been brought into the room because they were really good in their field, they're really good at their job, but then they had a voice at that table and could have steered it a completely different direction? Or what if a Christian had been the whistleblower and had been able to say, you know why I did this? Because I follow Jesus and because he doesn't want our communities to function this way. And so we're hitting two angles on this problem. One is the development problem, which is don't you want to have ethically sound Christians in the room where these new technologies are being developed? The other one is the user problem, which is shouldn't Christians on the front end, rather than just receiving these technologies and then kind of after the fact trying to figure out our way forward, wouldn't it have been better for Christians to understand how Facebook works so that they wouldn't get sucked into these troll farms? Well, yes, that would have been way better. And yet here we are. And so that's why we need to talk about technologies as they're developing. Yeah, I think of Ephesians 4.14 here is that it talks about Christians are easily blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. If you don't have faith as rooted in truth, if you aren't thinking through the culture and how the Bible responds to culture, then you're just going to be tossed to and fro here and there by whatever the cultural wind is. So what if we, when it came to NFTs, or what if it came to cryptocurrency or the blockchain or all these other topics? that we will at some point get into on our podcast over the next several months. What if Christians thought it through biblically and had developed some kind of Christian ethics toward these? What if we were in the conversation from the beginning instead of writing them off and then coming to it all late? So let me give the roadmap for the rest of this episode. I'm going to explain to Keith what NFTs are. Good luck, because I still don't know what I'm talking about. By the end of this, you'll know a little bit more about what you're talking. Actually, you'll just know how ignorant you are about what you're talking about. Do I get to ask questions? You get to ask questions. All right. So we'll have fun. I'll explain a lot about NFTs. And by the way, I just want to give credit where credit's due. A lot of this episode is based on work that I did with a friend of mine named Stephen McCaskill. We published a piece in Christianity Today. We'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read it. But you're getting the long-form version here, so I hope you enjoy it. So we'll explain what NFTs are, and then we're going to do a little non-fungible theology. Ooh, uh, just so you know, Patrick's wearing a sport coat today. When I walked into the office and saw him in a sport coat, I thought, ooh, he's ready for the NFT episode. Oh, Here I'm we go. so ready. This is my favorite kind of episode where Keith has to be the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I play the role very well. Good, good. Okay, so let's talk about what are NFTs. Okay, so my friend Stephen, who I just mentioned a moment ago, he went to the Louvre on his honeymoon, which is kind of a cool place to go for your yeah, honeymoon. Well, I wish I would have done that. Yeah. And, you know, he's at the Louvre with his wife, and they see all of these people huddling around something. You can't quite see what it is, but because it's a giant crowd, he begins to assume this has to be the Mona Lisa. I mean, what other painting is going to draw a crowd like this? And so he gets a little bit closer, and it is. It is the Mona Lisa. It's a smaller painting than he kind of <laughs> imagined it to be. <laughs> was it as impressive as he hoped? Well, you know, I, I think on one level, it was a little bit impressed and unimpressed. Sure. Uh, but, you know, it is a masterpiece. Uh, but him and I were talking, and he was making the point that there are so many replicas of the Mona Lisa around the world. In fact, I just looked this up. For $200, you can get a oil painting version of the Mona Lisa, which to your eyes and my eyes, we would not be able to tell that it was a fake. 
You could hang it up in your house and you've got the Mona Lisa in your house. So, so I think most people come to my house would know that's not really the Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point beyond that. Well, why would they know it wasn't the Mona Lisa? Because they know me. They know there's only one Mona Lisa. They know me. They know I don't own it. And they know I don't have the money to buy the original Mona Lisa. They know the original Mona Lisa isn't for sale. I mean, there's a thousand reasons. Yeah, so that's exactly right. It's because they're intelligent people. <laughs> they live and they breathe. They understand that there's a real original Mona Lisa. There's no way it's hanging up <laughs> inside of your house. No. Now, how do we know that the Mona Lisa at the Louvre is, is the real one? Well, it's because we have art professionals whose entire job is to authenticate art. This is the real thing. That's a fake. That's a forgery. There's a chain of ownership that goes back to show it and to prove it. And there would probably be written documents to record that. So yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So let's start there and we'll set that aside for a second. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that Leonardo da Vinci lived today. And naturally, because he was a forward-thinking person, always at the edge, the cusp of everything, he's decided he's going to become a digital artist. And so one of the questions then would be, if he's making the Mona Lisa of digital art, how would you be able to say, this is the real digital Mona Lisa? What's a digital art? (laughs) (laughs) I love that question. In other words, a piece of art which exists digitally. It's not just a photo of something that I made, although that photo would be a form of digital art. There are all kinds of digital artists who are creating things that there's no physical version of it out there. It is just a piece of digital art that that digital artist has created. Now, again, these can have lots of variations. Every song you listen to is digital art. Unless you're going to the concert, how did you listen to it? It's digital art. Everything you look at on your computer If it's an image, if it's something that someone created in Photoshop, again, that's digital art. So let's go back to your question. We have Da Vinci. He lives today, and he creates a piece of digital art. Or you could say Taylor Swift or whoever your favorite uh, singer is. They create a piece of digital art. How can we verify that this really is from Da Vinci? Yeah, how can you know it's a real thing? And let me add another layer. How could Da Vinci make a living? I mean, if he's making all this digital art and it's just free to copy and paste it, how does he get any money out of it? I mean, if you want to have Da Vinci's great artists out there, you have to pay them somehow. Okay, so if Da Vinci makes digital art and I can just copy and paste that, then he doesn't make any money. So this would be a little bit like say, of a musician created music and then it was stolen on Napster or shared on Napster back in the day? Is it that kind of thing? They were never paid for it? or Yeah, so now we're beginning to center in. So in the current internet, how do we solve this problem? Okay, there's two ways we solve it. The first way, and this is the more common way with ebooks or music, is that we use complex encryption systems. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of that. Here's what matters. When you buy a song on Apple Music, That song's yours, right? But have you ever noticed you can't play that on Amazon Music? You can't play it on Spotify? It's because you bought it from Apple. You bought it from a third party. Now, obviously, Apple's going to take its cut, and it's a very significant cut, of the royalties that come from you purchasing that song. The label that produced that song with the artist, they're going to take a cut, and, of course, the artist is going to get pennies on the dollar for the work that they've created. So that's one way, right? And because of that complex encryption system, only you with your Apple account can access that song. You can't say to your wife, hey, I bought this song. She can say, well, I need your account to be able to access that song if I want to be able to enjoy it. The same thing goes for eBooks, right? You buy lots of eBooks. If you want to tell your friend, hey, I just bought this eBook, I want you to have it. Amazon has a kind of loaning thing that you're able to do. It's a very, very big pain in the butt. So much so that I don't even, it's not even worth it. No, it's like, I'll give you 12 bucks to to just solve my pain. (laughs) I just... 
Yeah. So that's one way to do it, to say Keith owns this because it's associated with his account, but it will only work on our platform. So if you buy a Kindle book, you're only reading it on Kindle. You can never go to Nook. You can never go to any other product. It's right here on this thing. Because in the two examples that you just gave, I hope I'm tracking, the song that I own, but I have to play through Apple Music and the book that I read on my Kindle. I don't really own them, do I? What I own is access to them through the digital platform. But if I got rid of my Kindle and wanted to buy another device, I wouldn't be able to take all those books with me. They're only accessible to me through that platform. So, yeah, that's starting to make sense. So once you buy into the platform, you're watching the platform. So a great example of this is people might remember this back in the iPod days. We're talking early 2000s when uh, Apple opens up its music store and people are buying music there. Microsoft created a competitor to that. It was called the Zune. So it was its own little uh, MP3 device, and it had its own marketplace where you could buy music. And at the time, it was a question, you know, who's going to win, Apple or Microsoft? Microsoft was kind of the big dog at the time, so surely it's going to be Microsoft. And lots of people bought all kinds of music in the Zune marketplace. You know where the Zune is now? Never heard of it. Doesn't exist, yeah. right? So all that music you bought, unless you want to carry around a device that was made in 2002, <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore because you don't have access to it because you don't have a Zune. And so you see how this locks you into platforms. And again, there's a question of whether it's great for the artists who aren't making as much on it because they can't sell direct to consumers. They have to go through this third party to be able to sell to them. One other thought here on how you do this. Let's say you're a photographer or something like that, and you want to defend your images because those are even more challenging. You just Google search it, copy, paste. The only way you can do that is by hiring an attorney whose job is to defend your intellectual property. Now, if you're an artist, my guess is you don't have a lot of disposable (laughs) income to hire an expensive team of attorneys to go and find, first of all, all the people out there who are using your image that you took, and then to actually send them a cease and desist letter and then maybe have to take them to court to say, this is my property, you need to pay me for it. All right, so let's play this out and see if I get it. I'm a photographer and I take a picture and it's used in the New York Times. So people could go to the New York Times page and copy that image and then it circulates on the internet. Anybody can use it, but I don't get credit for it nor royalties for it. Exactly. And NFTs are going to solve that problem. Well, NFTs create a different solution to the problem, to all the problems that we're laying out right now. And so that's what we'll explore next. So again, let's go back to the definition of NFT, a non-fungible token. We already explained what that meant, but let's just do a quick repeat here. A non-fungible token is something that is unique. It's something that's discrete. In other words, I can trade my dollar for your dollar. That would be a fungible token, but I can't trade my Mona Lisa for the real Mona Lisa. They are not fungible. They're not interchangeable. Okay. And so the idea is how do you make content on the internet discrete? Unique. How do you make it unique? So that you can't copy and paste it. You can't circulate it. You can't Well, I wouldn't say that you can't copy and paste it. You still could copy and paste it. It's more about, again, if you go back to the Mona Lisa example, how do you communicate the fact that this one is the authentic one? This one is the real one. You can have your replicas of the Mona Lisa, but everybody knows your Mona Lisa isn't the real Mona Lisa. How do I make it clear that this is the real one? And how do I make it clear that I'm the owner of this real one? Okay, so can we do an example of something that someone would create that they would want to be able to prove that they have the original, like why that matters? 
Yeah, so it's probably worth saying we are very, very early in this technology. It's going to continue to develop and it's going to continue to change. And we'll talk about some of those future implications. But the things that we're looking at right now are very, very basic. One of my favorite ones, and maybe some people will recognize this, are CryptoPunks. So CryptoPunks, they're... they're Is this a person? No, no, no. So it was an NFT project created by a NFT creator. And what he did is he made all of these little pixelated punks. So like, I think it's 24 bit by 24 bit. So that's 24 dots by 24 dots of these little punks. And whenever you minted one, it would create a unique punk for you. Now, you didn't decide what it was going to be. It was all algorithmic. So, you know, some of these punks, they're like skinheads. Others of them have like, you know, mohawks. Some are smoking a cigarette. Some are wearing glasses. But each one is unique. And there's a limit to the amount of them. I believe 10,000 were created. Okay, hang on. A crypto punk is an image of a person doing something. And there's an artist who created them. You could buy one, but you didn't choose what you got. It just, the algorithm spit one out to you. Uh-huh. And there was a limited number of these made. And so I would have a picture, a CryptoPunk, a picture of someone doing something. And I'd want to show that that's mine and it's unique because there's a limited number of these. And so perhaps if this artist becomes a big deal, this will be worth money. And that's exactly what happened, right? So this project became an incredibly valuable project. Everybody wanted a CryptoPunk. Now let's just sidestep for a second and say, this is true of all things, that things have value because we give them value. Like why do you pay more for a Louis Vuitton bag than you do for a Walmart bag? Well, you might say the quality is better and I'm sure that's actually true true, but it's also because you want the logo, you know? And and so things have value because we give them value. And so these crypto punks, because who made them or what the images look like, somehow they came to have value. In the community, yeah. It was was like having a blue check mark. If you had a crypto punk, it was a way of saying, hey, I'm an early adopter. I get how this thing works. I'm a part of the community. A great example of this, there was a guy who had a crypto punk that looked like Walter White from Breaking Bad. So I know you don't watch TV, but it was, (laughs) it was this bald little crypto punk with a little goatee just like Walter White in the show and it kind of became famous because it was like oh this guy got Walter White and someone offered him 11 million dollars to buy his crypto punk this guy is not worth 11 million dollars he refused to sell it and he said he wouldn't sell it because it would be like selling himself one he had a sense of personal value on it right sentimental value I love this piece of art I wouldn't sell the Mona Lisa who gave me a billion dollars right now this is a piece of art that I love but also because he had used this as his profile picture and he associated himself with it. he says I'm not going to sell it now I bet you it's worth even more now by the way now that he made that statement but this is how it works that's how value gets assigned to things okay so the algorithm spit out an image a crypto punk to this guy that one, because it looked like Walter White, becomes really valuable, and he has the opportunity to sell it or not sell it. But this would be just like anything you buy, that it might turn out that the piece of real estate you bought has great value 10 years from now. It might not. This crypto punk could have been worth nothing, or it could have been worth $11 million or more. That's kind of the luck of the draw, just like anything else is. But he had it. He didn't want to sell it. And he can prove that it's his. Exactly. That's the key point. It's not just, I could go right now and find that CryptoPunk for you. And I could copy and paste it. And I could even get onto Twitter. and Could I use it for my image? Or does he have kind of copyright trademark I could go onto Twitter and I could change that into my image. Now, here's the deal. Rights are sold with this. So if he wanted to come after me, of course he could. But 
as NFTs continue to develop and more and more people are living in this space, people will know, you'll be able to see that's the real deal, that's not the real deal because it's verified. He is the owner of this thing. Patrick is not the owner of this thing. He's using it illegally. He's using it wrongly as his property, but he's not the owner. And I can prove it because it's been verified in the blockchain. Okay, because you're not the owner of it, no one's going to pay you $11 million for it because they know that you don't have all the rights and legal protections that come with the real thing. But you get to use it however you want. So let's say I bought a piece of land. Now that land becomes valuable because of its location. I'm the only one that can use that land to sell it to build a house or to put a convenience store, whatever I want in that land. But this digital thing seems different because although you don't have the real genuine one, you can copy and paste the image and use it in your life and get whatever benefit from it, if not the $11 million. Yeah, and so this actually goes to the point of being early in the technology. So let's go back to the Twitter example. Now that Twitter allows you to connect your NFT wallet to Twitter, I can't use that as my profile picture anymore, right? I could put it as my profile picture, but it would be a circle and everybody would know just looking at the shape, oh, he just copy and pasted some other dude's NFT, which isn't cool. Now, if it was an octagon and it had the CryptoPunk thing, then you would know, oh, that is the owner of that piece of property. And as things like the metaverse and the internet develops and more and more NFTs just become a normal part of life, people are going to know, are those real Air Jordans or are those just some sort of knockoff, you know, made in Taiwan? That's where we're headed. So right now it's hard to look at because what's the difference? Well, as we move more and more towards a world where people are having digital property, it's going to matter and people will know. Yes. Yeah, so as the systems around it develop, as the ethics develop, then it will be be more valuable to have the original. Do people wear knockoff Jordans? Yes. Of course. Of course they do. They do that all the time. And yet we all know that there's a difference between having the real Jordans and the knockoff Jordans, right? And so that's going to happen then with these NFTs, that we're going to develop whole systems that value having the original and not just a knockoff. And here's why this matters. Economies require scarcity. If something isn't scarce, it doesn't have value. True. You know, the reason why property, like real estate, has value is because if I own this piece of land, this is the only version of that piece of land which right. exists. You're the only one that can use it. I'm the only one that can use it. The problem with the internet right now is that nothing is scarce. Everything is available, with the exception of these encryption programs I talked about, which have all kinds of problems associated with them. They're not good for artists. They're not good for consumers. You can't transfer them around. All of the problems that I already laid out, there's no way to do that. And so what this is doing is it's changing the economics of the internet. Right now, the internet is built on economics that require advertising. Everything that we look at on the internet is based on banner ads. It's based on advertisers paying to get your attention from whatever platform you're on. And by the way, if you look at the problems that are happening around Facebook, Instagram, Google, and the ways that it's destabilizing our democracy, the ways that it's impacting and harming people, this is all because it's an ad built model. Because that's the only way that we know how to make money on the internet. If you can't sell discrete things, all you have is advertising. So it's damaging the democracy, like you just said, because these social media platforms sell advertising in order for that advertising to have value, they need to keep you engaged with it. And they appeal to anger and controversy and all kinds of things, negative things to keep you engaged. But if what you had were something that you could personally own and buy and sell, just like we do in the economy, if you could do that on the internet, then it wouldn't be so dependent upon ad revenue. And therefore, we wouldn't have to appeal to the kind of the lowest common denominator of human nature in order to uh, generate ad sales. I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but I'm going to do it on the fly and see if it makes sense. 
imagine that you wanted to share something with the world. You had a message or you had a piece of art or a song. And the only way you can do it is by sharing it in one specific place because that's where everybody is. Now, of course, that might be Facebook, Instagram, whatever else. But let's imagine that in the real world, the only place that you can expect that everybody's going to go and be at in this real world analogy is a strip club because people like watching naked women dance. And so for you to share your thing online, you've got to go to the strip club (laughs) so that people will see your thing. So there's stripping happening all around you, but hey, I've got a great message I want to share with you, right? That's what the internet is right now. Now, the internet is a strip club. Well, right now, it's what you just said. (laughs) How does Facebook keep you on their platform? It might be stripping. It might be sexual content. More likely, it's anger. It's outrage. It's emotion. And so they're throwing the strip club. They're creating all the negative emotions. And then they're selling a spot on the floor to advertisers say, hey, well, this stripping's happening. Guess what? We're going to have eyes. So why don't you sell your thing here? Because you as a content creator, there's no way for you to sell directly to the person who you want to sell your goods to. Okay, I think, honestly, I'm shocked, but I think that actually makes sense to me. (laughs) Uh, And so this has not developed yet. You're talking about this is a few years down the road. Yes. But it's where we're headed, and that's why we need to understand NFTs, understand where they're headed, understand why they might have value, and develop ethics around it. This doesn't exist yet, but it's in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to even press this further, I think that when we think about this biblically and we think about biblical economics, we should ask the question, is the current model just? In other words, we have a model right now where content creators, what's the value that they accrue for creating their content? Well, maybe get a few hearts, maybe get a few likes. You get attention. Attention is the commodity that you get as a creator. What does Twitter get? from you as a content creator? Well, they get free content from you. What does Facebook get? They get free content from you, right? And they make all the money. In other words, all of the actual financial value accrues to these massive big tech platforms that have all kinds of problems and the value does not accrue to the creators. But what do I have? What am I putting on Facebook or Twitter that has value that I want for it? Like if I write an article and publish that, through a newspaper or a blog or something, then I might post about that on Twitter. But the tweet doesn't have value. The tweet is trying to draw people's attention to the blog. Well, first of all, I think that's absurd. If the tweet had no value, no one would be on Twitter. So, Okay, it has the value as a doorway (laughs) to my... Yeah, it has a value to a doorway to a thing that you're selling. Yes. Well, are you selling? I guess you kind of are because you have subscriptions to the blog, you're on Substack, or because you want their attention so that you can sell an ad on it. So let's shift the analogy and look at things like Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music. Now, these are places where content creators are putting up music or videos for consumption by people. People want to listen to their music. And what do the creators get in return for putting their music up there? Well, for the most part, people aren't buying much music anymore. What they're doing is they're buying subscription services. And you are making literal fractions of pennies on the dollar for every stream that you get on Spotify, on Apple, and everything else. There are millions and millions of artists streaming on Spotify, and yet only about 7,000 to 8 thousand people are able to make a living off of Spotify. But doesn't it just mean that their music's not good and nobody wants to listen to it? No, no, no. I actually strongly disagree with that. It's because of the model, right? For Spotify to exist, it has to make money. I'm not even wronging Spotify in the picture, but for it to make money, it has to take the vast majority of the earnings that these creators are creating. They're creating the content, but they're taking home the earnings. Here's the deal. You only need 1,000 people 
who are willing to pay you 10 bucks a month to get your music, your thing, to make a pretty decent living. That'd be $100,000 a year. I'd take that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. So hang on a second. Let, let me see if I get it. So I'm an artist and I create music and I post it on YouTube. Now, people can't buy my song off of YouTube. So what they do is they go to YouTube and they watch, they consume the content. YouTube sells banner advertisements. And the more people that come listen to my song, the more people I draw to YouTube to listen to me, the more money that I will make from YouTube's advertising sales. YouTube will be incentivized to pay me more because I'm drawing more eyes there. And yet at the same time, it's only a fraction of what YouTube is making it. So you're an advertiser, you pay YouTube money, YouTube gives me a little bit of money, more if I draw more eyes, but still just a little bit of money because I don't have any way to sell my song directly to the consumer. What about albums or CDs, I guess, but those but are see, physical, there, right? You just, you just hit the problem, which is how do I, as a music creator, who knows that the fraction of people who buy physical things anymore? Yeah, nobody does that. How, how do I sell it to you? I have to go through one of these encryption platforms. Otherwise, my music is just free for the taking. Someone can just grab it and listen to and do whatever they want to. And let's to say I'm it. an artist and I say, well, I don't want to put my music out there in digital space because I can't make any money off of it. I guess, well, then I just don't exist, right? Because nobody's buying a CD anymore. Yes. And I guess this is why it makes sense that it used to be, if I understand it right, it used to be that artists, musical artists, would have concerts to promote their albums, their CDs. And that's where they really made their money. They didn't make a lot of money at a concert. They made a lot of money when they sold their CDs, their merch, all that stuff. But now, I think it's absolutely reversed, right? Now they put their music out there in the digital space for streaming services, and they get a few pennies off that. But what they're really doing is, in a sense, advertising their concerts, their music advertising their concerts, <laughs> because now they make all their money on tour. That's Is that exactly, right? No, that's exactly right. And by the way, what do you do when it's COVID world and <laughs> it's harder to tour than ever? It's harder to get people in a room than ever. And I would guess going on tour is pretty hard. I mean, it might look fun, but but it's pretty hard. And it would kind of suck to say I'm making all this music and I'm letting Spotify or Apple Music or all these title, whatever it is, use my music just to promote my concert. But I don't really make money unless somebody comes to my concert. So then I have a ton of concerts. I'm away from my family. It, it just sucks. I'm about to kind of cut into the next part of the podcast, but I think it makes sense to share here with the beauty of NFTs is that we're talking about it as discrete digital property. And yet it's more than that. It is programmable, discrete, digital property. It's just what I thought I was understanding. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's what I mean. Let me give an example. I'm an artist, and I just dropped my latest album as an NFT. So, Keith, you love my music. You buy my NFT album. You now have access to all of my music. You can listen to it. You can enjoy it. You own my music. Now, let's say a year from now or six months from now, you're done with that album. You don't want to listen to it anymore. What do you do with it? Well, right now, it just sits in your digital library. You forget about it. You don't do anything. But you might think, you know what? There's other fans out here. I want to sell it to them. Like a secondary market. Like a secondary market. So you go and you sell it to me. Say, Patrick, this is a great album. You should buy it. And so maybe I buy it from, you know, a little bit cheaper than I would have bought it buying it new. Now, here's where things get really cool. Because this property is programmable, you, when you, the artist who drops that NFT, you can program it so that every time someone else sells your album, you make money off of it still. Hmm. So now you, the consumer, get the advantage of, hey, I can get back a little bit of money by selling this on a secondhand market. And the actual artist, 
that's great for them because, you know, right now, if you sold a CD, the artist doesn't make any more money. But now a portion of those proceeds is going to go back to the artist, which again, incentivizes a economy that has never existed where trading and selling artwork isn't just good for the consumer, but it's also good for the artist. And you know who gets cut out largely in this is going to be middlemen. Or if there are middlemen, they're probably taking market cuts, like, you know, two, 3% of the value, as opposed to, you know, 80, 90, 95% of the value, which is what it is right now. The middlemen being the businesses like Spotify or streaming services. But those are the ones that are getting cut out that are making so much money now and it'll be reduced what they make. Okay, but here's the deal. I think I just had an aha moment and I don't think it's even one you intended. When we've been talking about NFTs being unique or discreet, I've been thinking of an artist creating a song and there's only one copy of it out there. But I think what you're saying is that a musical artist could create lots of albums. They're NFTs, but there's... 10 million NFTs of Taylor Swift's newest album, and they sell those albums. It's unique in the sense that I own this version of it, and they can track that version, show that I have ownership, I can resell it, but there's a bunch of those out there. I think I've always heard you say it's unique and thought there's only one and couldn't figure out why anyone would create one album. Because we started with uniqueness, because it's the easiest kind of entry into this, it's easy to think what you thought. Discreteness is what matters. So unique is there's only one of these things out there. Discreet is there might be many of them, but I have one of them. There might be a million copies of this book, but I have one copy of those million copies of book. And they're still not fungible, by the way, right? Like my copy of Harry Potter, unless we both brought it brand new, then maybe we could trade it with each other. But the copy that I have in my house that I've read, you know, multiple times is now kind of ratty. The physical copy is kind of ratty. And and again, but this is actually where NFTs get really cool because let's say you're an artist and you say, hey, uh, the first thousand people to buy my album they get a special version. It's like a first printing of it, right? And you know how people are with art. Everybody likes being the first person to kind of discover someone. Maybe it has show notes or liners in it or or an extra song or something. And in fact, it could add an extra value to it. So for example, again, because these are programmable, they could say, hey, if you're one of the first 100 people or 1,000 people to buy my NFT album, you will, as a part of your NFT, get a permanent coupon for 50% off of all of our shows from this point forward. Hmm. Well, now... That if you bought one of those albums instead of one of the later albums, that album actually has more value. Yeah. Because now you can get in, or they could say, hey, first 100 people, if you have this NFT, you get a lifetime backstage pass. And if you turn around and sell that NFT, that's with the special pass or the coupon for 50% You're going to make a lot more on it. You can sell that value. The value stays, the the coupon or the backstage access stays with your songs you bought, and Uh you can sell that along with it. Again, I'm going to keep adding layers that make this really cool. So there's something called POAPs, Proof of Attendance Protocols. Okay, you could build one of these into your NFT. Let me explain what that is. Let's say I have that NFT of the album and I use it to buy my 50% off ticket. When I go there, I can mark that I'm attended because if using, you know, geo tracking, we know where you are. It could make that NFT more valuable because now you're not just a fan who buys the music, you're a fan who's attended it, right? And so the artist might say, hey, if this NFT is proven to attend X amount of concerts, Here's the benefits that come along with you being my super fan. You know, maybe it is a backstage pass. Maybe it's something else. Now, the point here is I realize all this is going to sound a little bit like novelty, like kind of goofy stuff, but this is actually how you create value. And again, if every single time that NFT, let's say it's the super NFT, it's got a 50% off coupon and now it's got backstage passes because it's gone to so many concerts. When that person sells it, not only do they make money, but the artist makes money. 
Yeah, I think that's interesting that the artist makes money on the secondary market because right now, if you bought your Taylor Swift concert ticket for $100 and you sold it for $500, the person who's actually creating the experience, the concert, made 100 bucks off of your purchase. Yeah. You made $400 off of it, right? Because you sold the whole thing for $500. But now the artist is profiting off the secondary market. And I've always thought that's incredibly unfair to the <laughs> artist, the whole secondary market thing, yeah. whether it's an artist or whether it's a product or whatever. Yeah, they, when people buy books on eBay, I'm like, just buy the book and support the author. Yeah, I've always thought it's a ripoff for them, but now they can make money off the secondary market. So it seems to honor content creators, honor people who are producing things that other people want, honor people who are creating value instead of honoring the StubHub guy, instead of honoring the middleman, the Spotify, who's just bringing people together in a marketplace. It's not saying that what they're doing is wrong or anything. No. It's just saying that they're the ones who've been walking away with all the money and shouldn't the content creator be the one who's walking away with the most money? Yeah, it's a fundamental values question. Do you want the person who makes something to accrue the most value or do you want a secondary platform, which has a value, right? I'm not trying to make fun of Spotify. Without Spotify, I don't know how you're going to get your music. So, so this isn't me dogging on it. It's just the nature of the beast right now. The point is there's a future beast, which is coming. And it has all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of new things that could happen. Last little illustration, just because we're going down this path, this super artist NFT, 50% off, you got into all the concerts, you got the backstage pass. They could even say, hey, if you've qualified for these things, this NFT will now give you access to a special community. So it could be an online community of Taylor Swift super fans who all have this super rare NFT that shows that they're the real deal. And you can only get into this elite special community if you have the NFT. And so the artist is incentivized to create... Community. Well, incentivized to create bonuses that come with participation because that dries up the value of the NFT and they're going to reap part of the profit off of that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be super incentivized to do it if they weren't going to make any money off the resale of it. But now they are. So it all kind of starting to make sense, which is scary. Must be that sport coat you're wearing. <laughs> what I think is so cool about this is that it's taking us back to the basics of what so many people love about art. We love art not just because the art is great. We love art because of the community that can form around art. We love art because of the conversations you can have around art. We love art because we like to see creators making new things and we want to incentivize those creators, whether it's financially or otherwise, to continue to create. I mean, that's why we do it. In these platforms, Spotify, Amazon, wherever it's at, they don't incentivize that. That's not how they're designed. Is this true also for, say, films and books and yep. all kinds of other things? We're not just talking paintings or music. It's any content that is created. So we're using art in probably the broadest way you could imagine. Yeah. And again, these things are going to develop over time. The use cases of NFTs are incredibly expansive. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend just a little bit longer talking about the present and the future of NFTs because I think giving these examples really, really helps. We have totally sidestepped how NFTs work. We haven't talked about the blockchain. We haven't talked about the technology behind it. I'm not going to do that because we've already gone <laughs> pretty long here. Well, let's come back to that in a future episode. I mean, I think all that stuff's interesting. And I was talking to the guys the yeah. last few weeks and asking them questions about how much they understand NFTs. And one of the things that I've just been really surprised by is that they're as ignorant as I am. 
they want to know about it, but they don't want to seem to want to know about it, right? So I think everybody has questions about blockchain and all this stuff. So let's come back in future episodes and talk about it. Yeah, and maybe we'll just put this here. Again, my buddy Stephen McCaskill, this was his long-form description of NFTs, which just had blockchain in it. And I think it's going to make more sense now that we've had this conversation, but it'll help our listeners, I think, get your mind around it. So he said, an NFT is proof of ownership that is verifiable on a public ledger of transactions. They make it possible to spot when something is real and when something is a forgery, like a knockoff Mona Lisa. This public ledger called the blockchain. Oh, okay. I was thinking that's probably what it was, but I wasn't sure. The the blockchain is the public ledger that shows that I have proof of ownership. It shows a history of transactions over time, and it shows that you have ownership in that history of transactions. He continues, he says, this public ledger called the blockchain is the best method we've developed to prove whether or not something online is authentic based on the source of the publisher or the timestamp it was published. Okay. Is the blockchain cryptocurrency so or crypto- is it a different thing? Cryptocurrency is built on blockchain. It uses the blockchain, but the blockchain is a ledger of ownership that shows someone owns something digitally. That can be used for art, for music, for books, for cryptocurrency, for anything. Exactly. But they're not the same thing, but it's a, it's a what would you call it? It's a system It's a database. It's a database that lots of different things can use in the future to show ownership. Exactly. It's a decentralized database. Now we're getting into the specific details. Yeah, let's don't (laughs) do that because my head hurts. Let's not go there. Okay, so Keith, let's have a little more fun here and let me give some other examples of how NFTs might be used. Okay, so right now, do you use your phone whenever you go on an airplane to show your little QR code and have a scan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Even I can do that. Yeah, so that's pretty basic. Like your boarding pass. Your boarding pass, right? But you can know how stressful it is if you lose the image or I thought I got it inside of my little wallet book. Oh, I always screw it up. Right? And I hate it when other people screw it up and they're in line and they can't find it. And you're like, oh, dude. And there's this whole other element of like, you have to prove this is my ticket and this is who I am. So I need these forms of identification to show you that I'm Key Simon and Key Simon bought this. And so you got to let me on the plane because all of this fits together, right? Sure. Okay. So again, we'll probably in the future begin to use NFTs as our tickets, not just tickets to get onto airplanes, but our tickets to get into NFL games, anything that you would need a ticket to attend. Oh, so I understand. So I go to the NFL game or I get on an airplane. Now, airplane makes more sense to me because I have to prove that who I am because of security reasons, right? You don't have that necessarily in a sporting event. Well, you do. Let's think about ticket scalpers, right? So if someone screenshots a ticket and they say, hey, I'm going to sell you this ticket and I've got the screenshot, I'll text it to you. But they sell that ticket to three different people and you try to get your ticket scanned. Well, you're kind of screwed. Now, that's a dumb way to buy tickets. Sure. You'd be pretty stupid to do (laughs) that. You'd be pretty dumb to do that. But what's cool, and I think the airplane one is better, is because this property, that ticket, is associated with you personally. It's inside your little digital lockbox in the cloud. You're the only person that could have access to it. So I don't need to go through this giant identification protocol. I can know exactly who you are. Something similar, by the way, could happen in medicine. You know, you hear about people double recording people's medical information or something getting lost because it didn't transfer from this hospital to that hospital. Well, now all of a sudden, if all of your medical information is stored under your account inside of the blockchain, wherever you go personally, it's all there. It's all present. This is Keith Simon's medical history. So in the two examples you just gave, the medical history and the plane ticket, one of the things that it shows is that digital security is of incredible importance. Because if all your medical records are tied up in you as in this NFT and you have a copy of it, if I can get access to that and break into it, then I can do all kinds of 
bad, nefarious, nefarious stuff, things. right? Yeah. Same with transportation and airplanes and stuff like that. So I guess that the blockchain is uh, really secure. But, you know, with the advancements that come with creation and something like that, there come advancements in defeating it. There is. And the blockchain is remarkably more secure than what we're using currently to store that kind of So maybe it's not perfect, but it's much better than it is now. It's much, much, much better. Again, this is where like you start getting into the details and yeah, it gets a don't. little bit complex, so I won't get into Please it. Please don't. But the point is that if anybody were to alter your personal information on your account, it would be obvious to every node of the blockchain out there that someone had tampered with it. And every node would say, that's wrong, something's wrong here, go back to the original. The only way that someone could tamper with it is if they connected with the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of nodes out there and convinced them all, we're going to change Keith Simon's medical records. So that's what's meant by decentralized. Instead of having one place where it's held and one person you have to quote unquote fool or one system you have to break, yes. you'd have to break 10,000 nodes, and whatever that is. that's why it's so is. much safer than what we have now, right? Because if someone hacks into Bank of America or Chase or wherever you have your credit cards, your banking happening, they only have to break one system. Right. One system to take everything that you have to steal your identity. So that's where the decentralization turns out to be an asset for security. Absolutely. So anyways, another one. Let's talk about credentialing. How do I know that you're a real MD? Or how do I know that you are a ordained pastor? How do I know that you're a certified hairstylist, right? There's all these different things that people have to get certifications for. Or how do I know that you actually went to Harvard? You didn't just put it on your resume. Again, I think what we're going to see is that these things will be given to people as NFTs. There's no way to forge that you went to this school or that school. So there's no Ravi Zacharias bragging about going to Oxford or wherever else, Cambridge, I think, to get a degree because, no, it's not in your blockchain record. So you're going to have a little card, an information card that connects to all the things that are true about me. And I show that card and it has my medical history on it and it has my educational history and my, yeah. my work history and anything I own. I don't quite understand. Does all this come together in some yeah. central imagine thing it, I carry around imagine in my wallet? Imagine like a safety deposit box in the cloud. And you are the only person who has the key to the box. And how do I get access to it? Through my phone? Through Wi-Fi? Through what? I don't get it. You know, I mean, I know I sound like Katie Couric now with my hand drawing the at symbol. Yeah. I don't get it. You're the only person who has access to it because you have a personal key, which is a set of numbers that allows you to have access to it. And that's your box. But here's the deal. Rather than memorizing 50,000 different passwords and which one goes where, which everybody knows is a pain, these are much more difficult to steal. They're much more difficult to hack. You would have your own number, but you'd only have to have one, right? And so you'd keep that number in your safety deposit box and your fireproof safe wherever it is, right? Are there going to be idiots who give out their, of course. But you can't idiot-proof life. So let's don't go down that that. Right? I mean, if you're dumb, you're dumb. Can't yeah, fake stupid. Let me give you a few other examples. So what we talked about earlier, how these NFTs could, uh, with musicians, you know, they could write a contract into it where essentially I get a little bit of the proceeds when you sell it. That's called a smart contract. This is what I mean when I say they're programmable. So again, we're going to see this actually break into car sales, real estate sales. When you think about the amount of overhead that you spend just in doing the contractual logistics of buying and purchasing a car, of getting a loan, or of buying and purchasing a house, a lot of that is programmable. And so you would be able to program, and this is already happening, you can program these contracts into the NFT so that me selling my car to you is much less trustless, right? Because Much less what? 
So if I buy something from you, I have to trust that I've given you the money. So that's why we do cashier's checks, right? Okay, this is verified. This person has $10,000 in their bank account. They're giving it to me in the form of this cashier's check. And now I'm going to give them my car and my title, right? That requires still a lot of trust in a complex system. I've got to go to the bank. I've got to get the cashier's check. It's a hassle. It's a hassle. Now, if the title exists as an NFT... And if ownership is owned as an NFT, and because all of the financial transactions are verified in the blockchain, I don't have to know whether or not you have the money. The blockchain will tell me, do you have enough money to trade this vehicle right now? And so in other words, it's reducing trust that's necessary between someone buying something and someone selling So it's something. reducing friction. It's just making commerce easier to go back and forth between people or businesses or whatever. Yeah. And so we're going to see this with cars. We're going to see it with real estate. Anything that's contractual and that can be automated, so it lives on an if-then basis, you can automate that into the blockchain. It can start doing that work for you. Hmm. Let me give one last example. We've talked about the metaverse previously. We can link to that. Yes, <laughs> that was notes. metaverse for morons. Yeah. What are we calling this one? I like NFT for noobs. Oh, okay, yeah. that's good. Let's yeah. go with You're the noob. Here's my last one. I've got so many more. I just get so excited. <laughs> okay, I got to do two more. That, that says a Don't lot about stop. you right there. I know. Okay, gaming. Okay, right now in gaming, buying in-game gear. So this is like, you know, a shirt on your character or skin so your character looks a certain way when you're playing Fortnite. We're losing a lot of people right now. Well, I shouldn't because this is something like a $40 billion industry. Gaming is. No, gaming is way bigger than that. Just this one aspect of buying and selling gear inside of games. So I'm in a game. I don't play any of these games, but yeah. I read Ready Player One, so mm. I understand a little bit, right? So I'm in a game, and I want to buy a sword to fight this dragon, yeah. and I pay a dollar and get the sword. You're saying that's a big industry. Massive industry. And when it came out, it was laughed at, mocked at. Who's going to buy a digital shirt? Well, those people were dumb because the <laughs> biggest, most lucrative gaming businesses right now were the businesses that said, we'll give you our game for free, hmm. but if you want to buy some stuff on here, cool. Now, here's the problem. Hmm. If I buy something in Fortnite, like let's say I buy a skin so I look like Batman, I can't take my Batman skin from Fortnite over into Final Fantasy fourteen or uh, Call of Duty Warzone or one of these other games where I would want to do it. it. It only exists in this one place. And now there's a lot of reasons why that's the case that I won't get into. But one of the cool ideas here is that if you're able to buy it as an NFT, that would allow you, if these games were working with one another... They would have to allow you to do it, though. What I would describe it as, it'd probably be like going from one country to a different country, right? So if you go to Europe, there's some things you can't bring with you. <laughs> They're going to stop you. And there's some things you can't take back Bombs. out to the United States, right? But there's lots of things you can take with you that can go both places. The point is, there will be lots of things we'll be able to take around. Or even inside of the game itself. Like, let's say you level up this sword and it's the best sword. Well, there's no way for you to make any money off of your work that you put into making this sword. But someone might want to pay you real world money to have that leveled up sword. Well, again, NFTs, because you can now become the discrete owner of that specific sword in that game, you can sell to that person. This is happening in a game right now called Axie Infinity. There are people in the Philippines who are making a good living and all they're doing is playing video games and selling their NFTs, their, everything inside of an NFT, selling the NFTs to other people inside of the game. So it's becoming a gamer-owned economy. And the companies making money just by taking about like a three or 4% processing fee off of all of these purchases. So rather than the company making all of the money, which is what you see with things like Fortnite, they're taking a portion, but it's based on the idea that someone's going to be more incentivized to play their game. If they know what I do here, I can sell to someone else and I can actually make some money on it.
So I was going to ask you how far out in the future all this is. And I think you're saying that it's already happening in places in small pockets. It's going to grow and develop. And we don't know, you know, how long that will take, but nobody has a crystal ball, but it's not something in the future. It's today. It's in the future, but it's already started. Yeah, I would put it this way. If you think about it like a baseball game, we're just now singing the national anthem. I mean, we might barely be in the first inning. Sure. But those other innings are coming and things move really, really fast. Right now in America, I think there's something like 10 million wallets. So that's not a massive amount of people that are buying and selling crypto or buying and selling NFTs. But it's going to have to grow to 100, 500, you know, a billion people before it kind of hits that critical mass. But that's where we're at. Okay, so let's transition here. We've given lots of examples. I hope people feel like they have a better understanding of NFTs. And let's do a little bit of non-fungible theology. Let's think about this from a Christian perspective specifically. Okay, so we spent a lot of time trying to explain NFTs. And the reason behind that is so that we can actually have a intelligent, ethical conversation around how Christians should begin to think about this in the very, very early stages. So it seems like some of the concerns with Christian ethics around NFTs are the same that we might have around physical items that we already own, right? I mean, in some sense, this appeals to some of the same dark tendencies in our heart that we are very familiar with already. Yeah, all the normal risks of consumerism, of the desire to just have more stuff or to have stuff that's a status symbol. Well, that's all going to apply when all of a sudden digital content becomes discreet and ownable. Like your Octagon Twitter photo, that's going to become a cool thing. And then you might have a bad motive for wanting that to prove you're somebody just like now that maybe is a blue check mark or, you know, a certain number of followers. Think about the sneakerhead who stays up until midnight refreshing their browsers so that they can get the next pair of Air Jordans. You know, they love sneakers. They're obsessed with it. They're willing to spend all kinds of time buying it. Why? Well, it's because having those sneakers, it's a symbol. It's a status symbol. And it kind of shows that you're a part of a community. Now, that's not an all bad thing. But the exact same thing is going to happen digitally where people are going to be spending a lot of time browsing on OpenSea or these NFT markets trying to find the next thing. If they're an investor, oh, I've got to find the next big investment. How am I going to make more money off of this project that I'm doing. So in this sense, NFTs aren't creating a new temptation. There's simply another way that greed or seeking of status can manifest itself in our world. And so what our heart needs to hear is the same truth that we've needed before when Jesus says life does not consist in abundance of possessions or that our father knows what we need and provides. So we don't need to worry and obsess about our status, our reputation. Those truths are going going to apply in the digital world just like they do in our current physical world. Yeah, or I think about the warning from Ecclesiastes where the author is talking about how he tried buying new property and then he tried buying slaves and then he tried buying good food and he's talking about all these things he's trying to buy to satisfy his soul, to feel happy. And at the end of it in Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says, it's all meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And I think that's always the temptation with stuff is that we can spend so much time thinking, buying this next thing, owning this next thing, that's going to complete me. It's going to make me more of who I want to be. And of course, it never satisfies. And so that's going to be the warning I think we have to take into this new world. So are there any ethical concerns that are unique to NFTs? I think one is just the risks that accompany digital identity creation. 
So we've talked about this on the podcast at other times, but we are living in the era of self-expressive individualism. That's kind of a mouthful word, but what it means is I think that I own myself and I think that I create myself. And the highest, best thing I can do in my life is be true to myself. Whatever I see on the inside, that's the best thing that I can do. And so this is what people are doing on Instagram, right? They're cultivating an image of themselves, a version of themselves that the world gets to see. It's digital identity creation. But I think this will be even more tempting in the world of NFTs because now all of a sudden I can actually own stuff that shows who I am to the world. Does this allow you to pretend to be someone you're not in an easier way? So let's think of dating apps, right? You can project whatever image you want on there, yeah. more or less accurate. Do NFTs allow for that kind of duplicity or uh, self-definition to multiply or not necessarily? I think it's going to allow that and a lot more. I think, weirdly, it's going to allow people to begin to associate themselves with things that are non-human. I know that sounds like a weird concern to have, but I already mentioned this example earlier of the guy who had a crypto punk that looked like Breaking Bad's Walter White. Listen to what he said to Time Magazine when people were trying to buy it from him. He said, people almost now tie that character to me. It's almost like I'd be selling a part of myself if I sold him. Now, that's really interesting that he's become so attached to this NFT that selling it, he won't sell it, even though it would give him a lot more money, a lot more money than he has right now. He won't sell it simply because that's part of me. So his identity has become wrapped up in something that he's bought. And maybe that is true in some ways. If somebody has a certain kind of car or a lake house or gets to go to a Super Bowl, you know, some sort of big sporting event, they don't want to give that up because this is who they are. But this now NFT thing has allowed it to be a product in a way that you can show more people, like you can't show everybody your lake house, but you can show everybody that you have the crypto punk of Walter White. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I'm a little bit confused. You can hear it in my voice. I don't quite get it. I think I would press it one step further, okay. right? Because that crypto punk is his profile picture. In other words- You don't have your lake house as your profile yeah. picture. I mean, some people might. <laughs> you know, Elon Musk has one of his rockets as a profile picture. But you'd have to be a pretty- Yeah, Elon that Musk. kind of guy <laughs> to do no. that. It's not just that. In other words- He's associating himself with an image, with a digital avatar. He's saying there's something about this digital version of me that's more me than I am. Yeah, okay. So you're creating this digital persona that you hide the real you behind. And that is a whole Pandora's box of dangerous things. We don't even know what's coming. Yeah, absolutely. It's dangerous for us because we are already so deeply tempted to self-define. We don't want God to tell us who we are. We don't want tradition. We don't want family. We don't want anything to tell us who we are. We're all Mulan, you know, in 1999 saying, look, I will be whatever I want to be. And if you can do that digitally, of course, it's a temptation that we're all going to be tempted to buy into. Yeah, so we've thrown off the shackles of God, community, family, biology to say we're not going to be defined by anything outside of us. We're going to look inside of us. And now this digital world is allowing more and more expression of that, more encouragement of that. And that seems different. It is different. I'll end this little section with a quote from Isaiah 45. He said, woe to those who quarrel with their maker. The people who say to God, hey, you made me, but I know better than you. He says, those who are nothing but pot sherds among the pot sherds on the ground. Does it's a pot sherd. It's a broken part of a pot. So a broken pot, the pot sherds are the, the little pieces. Anyways, he says, does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands. In other words, humans have always had the temptation to look at God and say, I know better than you. I might be broken. I might be fractured. 
I might be the clay that you made, but I know better than you. Well, that's kind of my point, and that's why I get frustrated with people who think the digital world is somehow going to lead to all this negativity, bad stuff. We've struggled with these same things for thousands of years, and we're going to struggle with them until Jesus returns. So the digital world is only giving another manifestation of the same temptations that we have without the digital world we had in the physical world. Yeah. So, yes, we need to be aware. Yes, same we artist, need to new look. That's pay attention. At. We need to be careful. We need to follow Jesus in whatever world we're in, whatever era, whatever technology is available. But to act like the digital world creates a whole new set of temptations— seems a bit naive to the human condition. Isaiah is saying we were into self-definition back in 700 BC. Yeah, so whatever. So let's change the conversation from, hey, what are some of the warnings to maybe what are some of the opportunities that come with this new technology? And I would just start here and say, God made us in his image. He's a creator. We're creators. We partner with God to develop the world. That's the way he set it up in Genesis chapter one, right? That we co-create with God. Yeah, you know, one thing that bothers readers with Genesis two is that when the author's describing the Garden of Eden, there's all of these natural resources mentioned. It's like, oh, there's a river and there's gold and bdellium and onyx. And as a modern reader, like, why are you telling me about all this stuff that's in the ground? Why would I care about that? And of course, the answer is that if you are an ancient person, you know that's the stuff you need to build a civilization. In other words, Eden was seeded with everything that Adam needed to create civilization. Adam was made to create, to expand, to do new things. And so maybe we are created to join with God in creating the digital world, just like we had an economic world or an educational world or a business world. And we can do this to the glory of God. We don't have to be afraid of digital as if it is somehow from Satan. God has given us the resources that we need to create this digital space. So let's do it in a way that honors him. Yeah. When we're talking about culture making and creating, we have to talk about digital. Sometimes people are like, well, yeah, I like creation. I like creators, but why do we got to talk about this digital stuff? And I find that so laughable because just think about your own life. The TV shows you consume. They're probably complaining on a, on a digital <laughs> platform, right? I That's mean, exactly they're right. They're complaining about digital in a digital world yeah. in which they're using digital technology yeah. to complain about digital. The it's TV shows you off. watch, you're streaming them digitally. The movies, same thing. The photos you look at, probably grabbing them digitally. The music, the audiobooks, the ebooks, the articles, the newsletters. Even if you're reading physical books, how do you think that author wrote that book? Yeah. How do you computer. think that book was laid out? Digital is a part of creation. And so NFTs are allowing us suddenly to make digital property discreet. And I think that that's really good. I think about 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 11 to 12, where Paul's talking about the need for people to labor for their keep. He's saying, don't live off of other people. But it also suggests that, hey, it's good for laborers to reap the rewards of their work. Right now, in our current digital economy, it's really hard for digital creators to reap the rewards of their hard work. And so I do think there's an economic justice angle that we need to consider when we're talking about creating online content. So if we think about co-creating with God and living in a world as it's developing under his sovereignty, and we need to bring our whole selves, our whole Christian life in it, that means that we 
are going to be responsible for God for telling others about Jesus, helping others learn to be his followers. Just like we do in a physical world, also in the digital world, and we see some of that, say on Facebook, the kinds of things you might post or the kinds of ways you might interact with people. My guess is that this NFT world is going to change that a little bit or advance it. I think NFTs are going to open up new forms of evangelism. One of the coolest, or I think it's a cool part of NFTs, is that there's often communities that form around ownership. So you have a bored ape. This is a really famous... What? A bored ape? Bored ape. So bored ape... Like he was interested... And now he's bored? <laughs> yeah. So Board Ape Yacht Club, it was an NFT project and it was- Ape? Like gorilla? Ape. Yeah, like gorilla. Okay. So you can go look these up online. It was similar to the CryptoPunk thing that I said where it was these Board algorithmic- Ape <laughs> Yacht yes. Club? Yacht Club. It was these algorithmically produced digital apes. They all look bored. Like they're kind of just looking cool and they're bored. And there's often yachting themes that are part of it. Like boating. they might be wearing like a boating hat or something like that. Not all of them. See, this is where NFTs get a bad rap <laughs> because it just seems so juvenile. Well, it just I, seems I, like a, a waste of time, a way to a way to kill time. Yeah. I'm not saying it is. It just seems like it. I, I'm not going to disagree with you. And there's definitely an aesthetic around the NFT community right now that is kind of this almost Gen X grunge. I don't give an F about anything attitude, Surfing right? Dude, like just bored, cool. like a cool, you know. It, so I'm not here to affirm the ethos of the NFT community in its entirety because there's going to be other projects that come along that are very, very different than this. It's just what it is now. We're again, we're at the national anthem before the first inning. This is very early. Okay, so the board, the board. Ape Ape Yacht, Yacht Club. Club has a community around it. Yeah, so if you have one of these board apes, you can be a part of the digital online community where you're interacting with people, but they have also begun to do actual in-person meetups. There was one that was done in Miami, one that was done in New York City. And I have some Christian friends who own board apes. Now, I mean, these board apes are very, very valuable. Like after CryptoPunk, this is probably the most valuable NFTs that there are out there. So they own these board apes and they went to these meetups and they connected with other Christians, but they went in there with a missional evangelistic mindset. Like, hey, having this thing means that I get to be a part of this community. And we have this thing that we all share in common that we can talk about, which by the way, that's how you do evangelism. Well, okay, I was going to say, like, so you might think of a PTA, you know, parent teacher association that you go into and you think I'm a Christian here. Here's a community built around our school and education. And I want to get to know these other parents, teachers, school administrators. And I want to have a missional mindset that I want to, you know, maybe invite them to church or something like that. And so what you're saying is that the Board Ape Yacht Club or other digital communities, or you can enter into those with that kind of mindset to help represent Christ, be an ambassador for Jesus in those places. Yeah. I mean, it works the exact same way as what you're saying. You know, if I'm in the PTA, what I'm saying is I have shared values with you. We both care about the school. We both have shared interests. We want the school to do well. We want our students to do well. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But you can do this with sneakers. You can do it with video games. You can do it with TV shows. Like a PTA might be more substantive than an NFT club, but that's not what matters. What matters is the ability to build bridges. And it's really cool hearing the stories of these guys, how as they're building relationships with real life people based on this shared interest, when those people that they build those relationships, when their life hits the hard rocks of reality and they're like, who do I talk to? Who do I connect with? Well, I have to guess that someone who might be behind their list was someone who's a part of a community that they really value and have built trust with already. And they say, man, there's something different about 
about that person. I'd like to talk to them more. And that could be their pathway to knowing Jesus. Okay, so the NFT community then is just an extension of what we already have, human beings gathering together around common interests, common values. And I guess the danger here is if Christians write off NFTs or scoff and say, well, I'm not going to do that stuff. I'm going to live in the physical world. You know, they type that on Facebook. I'm going to live in the physical world. Then they won't have an ambassador in the Board Ape Yacht Club, right? Or whatever the new NFT community is. And so we can't pull back. We can't put up the drawbridge. We have to enter into the realities of the people we live with. And maybe that's people you work with or you go to school with, the PTA, or maybe it's the digital communities. But we need to build relationships with people with the hope that we can represent Christ to them. Absolutely. And add to that, you know, at least at this stage in the NFT world, a lot of the people who are buying NFTs and involved in the community are also developing NFT projects. They're also actively involved in developing kind of the next era of the internet, Web3. These are people who are at the first step in this new thing that's going to happen. And so again, by having Christians in the community, it's not just I'm a part of the community, but it's also I'm a part of this broader community that's going to shape what Web3, what the future of NFTs, blockchain, all these funky words we haven't even gotten into, what that's going to be. That might not be evangelism, but there is an ethical kingdom mindset that says, I want the future of the internet to be more just, more good, more beautiful. It's not going to be perfect, but I want it to be more of all those But the physical world isn't perfect either, right? Mm -hmm. So let's don't use that against it. Web 3. What was Web (laughs) 1? This is a different podcast episode. Okay. You're you're tempting me to go down the road. Well, We're already going long. Let's do it another time. We'll do it a different time. Web 1, Web 2, blockchain, all coming to you. In an episode in the future. Uh, <laughs> now, in all seriousness, uh, thanks for listening to this episode. I do hope that the ending of this, though, is challenging you, if you're involved with NFTs or you're not, to think a little more Christianly around the ethics of digital consumerism, around the ethics of digital identity formation, around the call of God to be involved in creating and making and developing and having a missional mindset to share Jesus with others. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.